Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast, Episode 3, the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover DIY living. In this episode, we'll discuss advice on cooking from scratch, making corn tortillas, bathroom cats, yes, bathroom cats, and we'll answer the question, is fencing the new fixed gear bike? We'll also answer a reader question about keeping chickens in small spaces. I'm Eric Knudsen, a.k.a. Mr. Homegrown. I'm joined today by my co-conspirator, Kelly Coyne, a.k.a. Mrs. Homegrown. Well, welcome to the Root Simple podcasting cosmodrome, I think I might call it. Do you mean the back office? I mean the back office. <laughs> the guest bedroom. The guest bedroom. Speaking of guests, <laughs> eventually, by the way, we'll have some guests on this podcast. But for now, we're, uh, well, we're... It's our, you and me. Yeah, we're our, each other's guests. <laughs> Be my guest. Our first topic is about cooking from scratch, something that you wrote about on the blog this week, which kind of grew out of um, our obsession about sugar from the week before. Uh, Kelly, why, why do you think it's so important to cook from scratch? There's just so many reasons. It's There's health reasons, the environment, sticking it to corporate interests. It goes on. It's, it's civilizing to sit down at table. It tastes better. I mean, very rarely... Can you buy anything pre-made in the store that's going to taste better than something you made yourself? I'm thinking back on today's lunch, which I just made, and I was fairly today's proud of that. Today's lunch was, was that very That was an artisanal good. lunch, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, I made uh, bread from scratch. It was a really good uh, whole wheat bread, sour, dense, like kind of Germanic bread. And then I used some of our chicken eggs to make an egg salad that was just loaded with fresh vegetables. So it was half vegetable and half egg. And then there were sliced cucumbers and tomatoes, um, some open-faced sandwiches. Like, where are you going to find that? It was really good, if a bit precious and pretentious, though. I mean, we are not what? above... Well, we're not above going to get a burrito somewhere, too. Yeah, there's to times when you just that. have to go get a burrito. But when you make food at home, I mean, that took like... That didn't take but five minutes to throw together, not counting the baking of the bread, of course. It was delicious, and we're not going to find anything that good pre-made, certainly. And even in restaurants, it's hard to find stuff that good, it, at least in my price good. range. It was good, that's for sure. And it actually didn't take that much time altogether. The bread was a no-need bread, like all the breads I do. And it took you, I don't know, a few minutes to pull together the egg salad, maybe that's a it. half hour or something oh, like God, that. Oh, God, no. Like 10 Longer minutes? Than that? 10 minutes. Yeah, well, you, you had just, to boil the eggs. Oh, well, yeah, not counting boiling the eggs. Yeah. But to get back to the post, you had a couple of um, you had a couple of points about cooking from scratch. I started the post with five of my own ideas about cooking from scratch um, in terms of helping people who are just getting started. Like Thankfully, things... you didn't give it one of those clickbait titles like five great ways to cook from scratch. Did well, you? no, it would be like five things you should know before you kill yourself cooking from scratch. There you go. Something like that. Just I just had five points, and then I asked readers to give me more more of their own advice, and a lot of wisdom came in in the comments. So uh, I'll repeat some of that here, well, too. Well, the first point was simple is good. Yeah, simple is good. Simple, me, I mean that you don't have to cook fancy. You don't have to cook courses. Uh, you, you certainly you don't even really need to cook side dishes. I think some people think that to make a proper meal, you know, you have to have a meat, a starch, a vegetable, a salad. 
No. Good cooking can be as simple as a pot of soup or a plate of beans and rice. I don't think that you need to work yourself into a lather to make good, healthy food that feeds you and your family well. No sous vide, no foams. No. See, that's the problem. We're, we're too obsessed with celebrity chefs and extreme cooking, and we certainly don't. I mean, a pot of soup, uh, if you eat meat, you know, you can have all your meat and vegetables in one place. You, ha- you have all four food groups in a bowl. You have some soup. You have some bread on the side. If you're too tired to make a salad, it's fine. You know, you are eating well. You're getting everything you need. There's no need to stress out about this. Simple, good ingredients prepared simply. Yeah, that's the basics. The second point you had was make double batches. Yeah, you just make more than you're planning on using and freeze the rest. So you've got um, you've got something in the freezer for the future when you don't have time to cook, or you can put it in the fridge and have it for lunch, or use a main dish as a side dish down the road. Your own frozen meal. Your own frozen dinners, yeah. And then you said the third point was shop with a list, which... And a plan. And a plan. You need a plan. I'm very bad about. If you don't have a list and a plan, you're lost when you go to the market. I don't want to scare anybody by by pretending that it needs to be a very organized list. I mean, I know some people can plan out for a month and have every ingredient down. I just do five meals for like a weekly shopping trip. I will think I need to come up with five dinners I'm going to make this week. What do I need for them? And I get those ingredients, and then I also pick up whatever I need that, um, you know, those kind of usual suspects food that you always have around for breakfast and lunch. It's, it's not hard. It doesn't take a lot of brain power. But it's important because if you, if you set your intention to cook by planning those five meals, I believe you wake in your inner cook and you start anticipating those meals and you get excited about those meals and you start organizing your thoughts around making those meals and you become a cook as opposed to like a random kitchen adventurer you are you are thinking like a cook when you make plans i think i'm a random kitchen adventurer <laughs> see i like that i like that we make a t-shirt that says random kitchen adventurer uh, um, the fourth point was consider how ingredients from one meal might transfer to another. Yeah, that's actually sort of a subset of, of the last point. If you're making a chicken, say, maybe you could use parts of that chicken in a future meal. You have a roast chicken one night, you have chicken tacos the next night. you making stock for soup. Make a lot of stock and figure out other dishes that you can... Uh, make with stock later on. Stock is just as an aside is the most invaluable thing you can keep in your kitchen as a home cook. It makes everything taste better. And canned and box stock is just awful. So you need to make your own stock and your cooking will just go up by several notches and it doesn't take any effort. And then the last point you had was pick a cooking style and try to stick with it. What did you mean by that? That one's controversial. And and as I suspected, not everybody in the comments agreed with me on that. I think some people take a lot of joy in... Well, some people like variety. They like variety. They like cooking all over the map and, and experimenting and learning new things. And I did for a long time. I think now I'm just getting to the age where I want everything to be pared down and simple. I want things that work. I've become more and more enamored with not having choices lately. I'd like to go to a restaurant that only serves me one thing. I, I don't even want to think about things anymore. So I've figured it's like a out... a restaurant concept there. That is my They're restaurant only concept. Only carrots. It would be called carrot. No, my restaurant concept... Somebody should do this. I've told other people this. My, my restaurant concept is called Feed Me. 
That's the name of the restaurant. And you go in there and they only have one thing on the menu for a set price. And you have no control over what it is. And it may be meat, it may be vegetarian, it doesn't matter. Whatever they serve you is sourced from the highest quality, humanely sourced ingredients. So even though, for instance, I don't eat a lot of meat, I would feel okay about eating some meat stew at Feed Me because I knew I would know that that the it is a little bit like that strange Polish place here that just just plops food on the table. Polka, polka, yeah, yeah. But I don't think the ingredients at Polka are sourced well. Feed Me, impeccably sourced ingredients, so you have no worries. There's a flat fee for a plate of food, an extra fee for a glass of wine. They've already picked out the wine for you to match, so you don't have to think about that. And you can go in there alone and not be embarrassed. And you just plop down and you get excellent food put in front of you within five minutes. Somebody please open this restaurant. Well, that's what you're opening in the house. <laughs> Is that how you, you imagine Basically. our relationship? Feed that me. I am, I am, I'm feeding you. Feed me. <laughs> uh-huh. um, <laughs> I don't know if I like that. My, my own two cents on this cooking from scratch thing, it seems to me to be a, a time management problem. And one of the things when I'm developing bread recipes to teach is I always try to consider that the audience is overworked, really busy, has kids, they don't have a lot of time, they're not at home during the day. How do you, how do you cook from scratch given those constraints? We work at home that so we have, and we're experimenting. This is what our job is, is to experiment with this stuff. How do you speak to people who don't have who don't have a lot of time, who have kids? I think it, people pull it off. I'm thinking about one of the, the most popular suggestions amongst reader comments was the crock pot. You throw ingredients in the crock pot in the morning and you set, turn it on and you go to work and you've got something ready to eat when you come home. So that's, that's one way of going about it. Which is a little bit like the bread recipes that yeah, I advocate just, where you mix them in the morning and then you bake them, and you put them in the refrigerator for certain periods. You bake them when you're back at home. There's a flow to these things, when, and with experience, you can pick up that flow. I think it's a lot easier to cook from scratch consistently, night after night, than it is to decide suddenly that you're going to cook from scratch one night, and then the other four nights of the week, you know, you're, you're doing takeout or whatever, because you don't have the tools and the ingredients in place. But once you're rolling, it's, it, there's momentum to it. And once that momentum's going, things just start coming together. You see how your ingredients work together. You've got things already made like, oh, I've got some roast vegetables from last night, or there's that chicken in the fridge, or I've got some stock, or why don't I throw some leftover chicken bits with some stock and make some soup real fast. Everything comes together. But if you don't cook from scratch very often and your your uh, pantry just has some crackers and a, a bottle of wine and some olives in it, you know, you... you you have to start from from zero, and that's frustrating. It seems like that list of five ideas, though, actually does address my time management concerns because you're freezing stuff, you're using things from one recipe for another, and it does speak to the time issues. Oh, and the I didn't finish talking about the fifth point, which is uh, redu- uh, picking a style. There's a sixth point? No, the fifth point. The fifth point. No, the fifth point, which is what we, we, we got off topic a little bit, but my fifth point was to pick a style of cooking and stick with it. Oh, yes. In which I mean, like, 
we live in a multicultural world, which is fantastic, but it gives us the sense that, oh, uh, I have, like, if I look at my own bookshelves, I have Indian cookbooks, I have Middle Eastern cookbooks, I have Mexican cookbooks, I have Italian cookbooks, and I have Japanese cookbooks. I love all these foods. It's fun to try to cook them, but it's hard to keep a pantry that can support all these different kinds of cuisines. And when I was talking about simplicity earlier, this is what I mean. I want to pare down the pantry so that everything in the pantry matches. Like as much as I love Japanese food, it requires a specialized pantry to cook it. I have to have kombu seaweed. I have to have mirin. I I have to uh, have weird little pickles on hand, things like that. And those foods don't really go very well with other foods. Like you don't, you know, you, you know, what are you going to do with your leftover teriyaki mushrooms, you know, how are those going to blend with um, some sort of Middle Eastern stew? Like the the flavors don't match and the ingredients don't cross over a lot. So I think for me, it's easier to just to choose one basic cooking style and dedicate my pantry to those ingredients. Part of that decision is made on the basis of what grows most readily around Kind of us. like a, a bio-regional It's sort of like cuisine. a bio-regional cuisine. Yeah. It, I mean, I could just arbitrarily say, I'm just cooking Japanese style from now on out. And I could do that because I have the resources to do that in the city. But it's easier for me to do sort of a Mediterranean style cooking here. It should also be said, we have access to a huge Middle Eastern supermarket that's conveniently located and <laughs> yes, reasonably yeah. priced. Yeah. So. That's one of the things that's influencing it. Yeah, but also I love those flavors and the herbs and vegetables that we grow in the yard are supported by that um, supported well, by that climate, style and the it, climate. It's the climate of the Mediterranean here. So yeah, I would I would encourage you to look at your bioregion, look at your family's taste, look at what is sold in your town, what's easy to get to for you, and then then sort of simplify your life by focusing on one cooking style. Or maybe you could cook Japanese for one week and cook Thai another? I, I was trying to do that, and I just find it too confusing. I'm, 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 but I I'm like really, the Japanese food. I know you like it when I cook Japanese food, but it's like sort of a waste of money. I always end up with things going going to waste and, you know, old kombu. I'm like, how old is this kombu? Since, you know, how old has it been? How long has this package been open since the last time I went through a Japanese cooking jag? I don't know. What did uh, some of our readers say about cooking from scratch. Yeah, lots of good ideas. So the crock pot was mentioned many times. Uh, also a cast iron Dutch oven, which which is just about slow cooking. You can't leave it unattended the way you the way you can a crock pot, but you can um, you know put it on low in the oven and go do other things around the house. Uh, people think that good spices are totally worth it, and I agree with that. So stop being a chump and buying spices at the supermarket. Grind your own, is that what? Grind your own is the very best. If you can get whole spices, they keep better, and it doesn't take very long to crush them up in a mortar and pestle and throw them in, and then the, the flavor factor just goes oh, through. Somehow we've never managed to do that. I do that, my darling. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> yes. <sighs> I'm so underappreciated. Um, also, they ask that you know your spices. You just that's one thing that when you start cooking, you don't know what is you know. Just taste them. What does taco seasoning taste like? What's in herbs de Provence? What 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 you know? Just learn your spices. Uh, there's a you go to like a good spice store. Sometimes they have classes and samples and things like that. Also recommended were decent knives. You know, invest in a decent knife. Keep it sharp. Everything is so much easier when you have a good sharp knife. 
learn cutting skills. That's something I still would like to do. I'd like to go to a knife handling class so I can go to all Ginsu with my knives. People recommended structure, structure in the menus. I'm not this structured, but some people find it very helpful if they think of the weeks of the night, uh, they, how do I say this? Like they'll have chicken night. Like they'll say every Friday night is chicken night. I'm going to make some kind of chicken on Friday night. I don't know what kind it is, but they know that by Friday they have to have a chicken in the pantry and they can spend time thinking about what kind of chicken they want. Or Monday t- night is soup Taco night. Tuesday. Tell you, we have Taco Tuesday. That's true. Kind of fell by the wayside. We also had Bean Friday for bean a Bean Friday, Taco Tuesday. So sometimes that can help you conceptualize your menu if you... Um, if you have certain days of the week assigned to certain I can just hear the food. kids complaining about that one, though. Oh, no, it's Bean Friday Not again. Not Bean Friday. Oh, Mom. Uh, there were book recommendations. People, A couple of people recommended Mark Pittman's How to Cook Everything. We have his How to Cook Everything Vegetarian, which is encyclopedic. I, I like Mark Pittman and all he does, but some of the recipes don't always work. I think it's just because the book is so big. I don't know how you could possibly write thousands and thousands of recipes and compile them into one book and have everything work. Uh, we, we've written a how-to book. We know exactly how difficult that is, and making it isn't nearly as ambitious as how to cook some everything. Of the, some of the recipes are really good, but they're, it, it is a bit uneven. It is a bit that uneven. That was my experience. But there's, I think what's more important is like technique. Like When he covers technique, pay attention. Um, because I think he's got really good ideas about technique, whereas sometimes the specific recipes just don't sing all that The general well. idea is good. I, yeah. I respect him a lot. Oh, yeah. I, I should love, say that. Yeah, we've seen him speak. He's wonderful. Um, and, yeah, and I think the book would be worth it for technique, if not for specific recipes. Also mentioned, and I think I've reviewed this book on the blog, is Tamar Adler's Everlasting Meal. Uh, and she is a big advocate of simplicity in cooking and in, encourages people to to use really simple cooking techniques. She even you know brings back boiling. Boiling's been sort of off the menu for a while. I mean, she she loves boiled foods and roasted foods and and common sense things like you know when you go to the farmers market when you come home while you're still excited about the food, take that time then and there to unwrap all your your purchases chop and prep them and have them in your fridge and then you'll be so much more likely to use them than if they are just you know wrapped up in a bag and shoved in the back of the fridge and i think that is a really really good point and whenever i do that everything's easier make your own stock every day i as i've already talked about nothing's more important than stock every single day Oh, I'm sorry. No, no. Make your own stock every week. Every week. Yeah, make a fresh batch of stock every week. And that's easy to do because at the end of every week, you'll probably have a lot of vegetable scraps left over or veggies that are sort of teetering on the edge of respectability. All that can go into the stock pot. So you don't waste anything. And then you also don't have the high sodium factor you have with purchase stock. Yes. Purchase stock doesn't taste good and the sodium levels are just through the roof. Uh, It probably has sugar in it too, for all I know. Uh, high quality stock is the key to all, all good cooking, all all the cuisines. It's it may it, you know, it's not just about making soups and stews. You can braise vegetables in it. You can use it to make rice. It just adds flavor punch and, and a nutrition punch to everything. Also, if you have anybody ill around the house, you can feed them stock, meat stocks. If you eat meat, um, bone stocks are are very very nourishing to young and old. Uh, what else? They also Oh, I've already covered this when I was talking about Tamara Adler's Everlasting Meal. 
many people uh, were saying, you know, prep your vegetables in advance, as she recommends. And also think about your budget, uh, budget tightly and, and get most of your calories from inexpensive foods like grains and vegetables, and then save your, your dollars for splurges on high quality cheeses and humanely raised delicious meats and fishes. So you can just, so you don't spend all your money on, on um, badly raised protein sources. Uh, someone says it's worth investing in classes. Oh, yeah. I, a little self-interest here. I teach a lot of bread classes, but I also take classes. And I'll uh, definitely second that. Learn, cooking is a deep skill, and you can spend your whole life spend, learning well, here, how to do it. Here's what I'd say. Spend the money on classes, not equipment. Yes. Yes. I, I think that is a problem when you look at like a Sur La Table catalog. They think they try to sell you machines that uh, will give you mastery. $4,000 espresso machines yeah, is what you're talking about? We were just looking in the latest Sur La, or somebody's, maybe... I think it was Sur La Table, Was yeah. it Sur La Table naming selling... Naming names here. But, we're, we're naming names. Um, but they were selling a jam-making machine right. that just stirred the jam for you and watched the temperature for you so you don't have to. I mean, how much counter space do people have? I don't have counter space for all this stuff. But yes, learn how. Uh, learn from good teachers and have a few good simple tools and you'll be set to go. You really just need like some good pots and good knives and a cutting board. That's really all you need to do, almost anything you need to do. I should put a plug in here for Joseph Schuldiner's Institute of Domestic Technology that I teach for, by the way. Oh, a little these, commercial. A little uh, crass plug there. but um, If you live in this area. If you live in the area. Yeah, which is Southern uh, California. We've worked really hard on the classes, I have to say. And uh, it's a lot of the sort of cooking from scratch type things, jam making, cheese making, bread making, things like that. Okay. Well, that's that's basically the list. Good. So now we're going to cook from scratch. We are cooking from scratch. Well, I suppose. When was the last time we ate a frozen entree? Actually, it's been a long time. Yes, it has. I am craving a burrito, though. Sometimes you just have to sneak out for a burrito. Speaking of burritos, that leads us to our second topic, which is corn tortillas. Now, there's something inherently wrong about a gabacho, as I said in the post, giving tortilla advice, but I'm going to do it anyways, because this has been one of the more successful projects around the house. I actually began the post uh, as a series of posts on things that are worth doing, yourself things that are worth doing yourself from scratch uh we've tried many things around here not worth doing from scratch for instance making your own lye from palm fronds (laughs) that did not work out so well i almost burnt down the house (laughs) you almost burnt down the house and we didn't end up with lye in the end No, I did get I did get a weak lie uh, eventually. Very weak lie. Not from the palm fronds. That's an entire other uh, podcast. Corn tortillas, on the other hand, definitely worth making from scratch. When I say from scratch, however, I did actually try to make masa once. Now, masa is what you make tortillas out of, and it's a limed corn. So it's not just straight corn, to be clear. Exactly. You, it's you not start, like just polenta or something like that. Right. You start with dried hominy, and then you lime it. I think that's how it goes. I did it once. You, you have to run it through 
you know, it has to soak overnight. You have to run it through a, um, a ricer thing. Uh, it was a lot of work. And to be honest, I didn't end up with a very good product in the end. I think if I knew what I was doing, it might have been worth it. But definitely for your everyday tortillas or uh, tamales, you, you want to... You want to buy a prepared masa. Now, we're talking about tortillas here. Tamales is a whole other kettle of fish. But um, the tortillas, I, I think it's safe to say, Kelly, that they've been pretty good. They're very good. Definitely better than the supermarket. Oh, gosh. the super, Then we're making corn tortillas. And the supermarket corn tortillas are like little rubbery pieces of tasteless. Oh, I just. They're just, like packing materials. I really don't like them. No, like but the, the homemade ones are good. Are there delicious. was there, there was some controversy on the blog over the type of press to use. I bought a cast iron press, which I've been reasonably happy with. But a friend of ours, who I believe is from Oaxaca, suggested a wooden press. Several people actually suggested a, a wooden press. And you can make your own wooden press. There's su- such descriptions on the YouTubes, right? There is. In fact, someone left a post, uh, a comment on the, my first post about uh, the tortilla press linking to a uh, make-your-own tortilla, wooden tortilla press. But you can you can find a wooden tortilla press at... Uh, many lar- uh, the larger Latino supermarkets will have them, or markets will have them. Uh, but you know, again, my my cast iron press has been fine. And of course, if you really know what you're doing, you can do it with your hands. But that- I'm not I'm not you know, qualified for that. <laughs> needless to say, and you know, this is a time management thing too. The press does make it easier to do. Uh, what about the plastic? What about the plastic? Here's the problem with the press is that you have to insert a piece of plastic in the press in order for it to not stick. In other words, when you press the tortilla and you don't want it to stick to the tortilla press itself. And I feel a little bad about using the plastic bag. However, our friend from Oaxaca sent me a video of people making tortillas in Oaxaca. And guess what they were using? Use plastic bags. Well, uh, one plastic bag will last a long time. Exactly. I reuse the plastic bag over and over and over again to make tortillas. Uh, and I actually just keep it in the press itself. So when I'm ready to go, I just pull the whole thing down and, and use it. You're using a um, like a freezer bag, right? Going no, actually, or, I'm using... What, what kind of plastic? I'm using a... Um, plastic bag from the market. Oh, you mean a grocery bag? A grocery bag. You found that, because there used to be the freezer bag. Yeah. Like, I, like that I've, heavier plastic. I found actually that the, just the shopping bag works better for whatever reason. So you're, are you cutting it in half? Yeah, or? you cut it basically in half. So it, it becomes kind of like an open book. You can imagine that. And then you put that in the press. Oh, okay. So it's, 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 it's very simple. And then there was a question about what kind of masa to use. Masa is the, is the flour that you use to make tortillas. And I've been using the, the brand that's in all the Latino supermarkets here, which is called Maseca. There was some concern about whether it's GMO or not. I think it's safe to assume that it is. Because most corn is GMO. Yeah. Right, like 99% of it or something is of corn and soy are GMO. And this, this is a whole other area that uh, a rabbit hole I don't want to fall down right now. Uh personally, I don't feel bad eating this product 
I don't feel great about it being grown. That's two different things, but that's a whole other podcast. If you're concerned about GMOs, Bob's Red Mill has a masa that you can buy, and Bob's Red Mill uh, says that none of their products are GMO. However, they don't guarantee that there isn't some drift. And, of course, corn being a wind-pollinated crop, there is a likelihood that some of your corn is, is GMO. However, they do not grow any GMO crops from seed. That was one of their, their pledges. And so if that's a concern, then the Bob's Red Mill masa is what you should go with. It, it's interesting. It, it's actually um, a brighter yellow. It's more, it makes a more attractive tortilla. But I, for whatever reason, I got to say, I, I like the, the supermarket stuff better. I, <laughs> I hate to say it, the texture or something appealed to me. But I'm considering giving the Bob's Red Mill product a, a second chance because I, maybe I didn't um, use enough water or something in the mix. One of our commenters praised it and said that she really enjoyed the flavor much more. So, yeah, we'll we'll give it another try. We'll give it another try. Uh, The mixture I'm using is about 250 grams of flour, of masa, to 300 grams of water. And then another suggestion, and this is something that I do too, is you let it sit for at least a half hour before you make tortillas. So it's something you have to remember to do about a half hour, hour before you need to make your tortillas. Uh, Paul Smith, who's an old friend of mine from, from grad school on Facebook, also reminded me to say that you need to add salt to the masa before you add the water. Um, and then when you mix it up, again, it should sit for a little bit of time. Uh, there was another question in Facebook about how do you keep the tortillas from getting dried out because it takes a little bit of time to make them. Meanwhile, you got to make the filling for your tacos or whatever you're making. Uh, how do you keep them? How do you keep them pliable? And of course, you can again in the in the Latino supermarkets, you'll find these little kind of insulated containers that are exactly for that, for keeping them warm, but also. The steam from the cooking tends to keep them pliable in this little kind of airtight container. I've just been throwing a towel over them, and that seems to work just fine. Maybe I'll invest in one of those containers at some point. And then the last point is, you know, if you have, there's just two of us, but to make a a bunch of them at one time, the more kind of coals on the fire you got going, the better off you are. Uh, that is to say, I was really, this is really lame, but I was making one at a time. And of course, it takes forever when you do that. And I realized, duh, I have four burners. I can make at least three at a time. Kelly also pointed out we have a large cast iron frying pan that I seem to have forgotten about. That would also work. In the Latino markets, you can also buy these little comal things that are little kind of plates that you could also use uh, for cooking a bunch of the time, although the ones I saw were, were non-stick Teflon, which I'm not a huge fan of. Uh, of course, if you have a large griddle on your oven, that might also work. It's but, just like making pancakes. Yeah, exactly. You, you want to make... You know, what, however you turn out the most pancakes, that's how you do your tortillas. This is sort of a well-duh thing for most people, probably, but uh, the more you can make it at a time, the better. Anything else you want to say about tortillas? Nope. Get out and do it. Mm, they're delicious. Moving on. Cats in the bathroom. 
Why? Why? This is Why the, do the cats follow us into the bathroom? Kelly did a blog post about this. I think it's one of the great unsolved mysteries of nature. We'll I probably check, never know why this happens. I checked the internet, and of course, no authorities are weighing in on the uh, issue. I would there's, like to see a scientific paper on cats in bathrooms. There's but, probably not a lot of money for research on um, why cats. cats like to go in the bathroom when you're using the bathroom. Probably not. The, of course, the internet is full of speculation. I, I think I like the idea just that cats can't stand closed doors. They don't ever want to be... Uh, locked out of any space. They, the house is their domain. They want free access to it. So if you go into a room and close a door, they think that something amazing must be going on in there and they've got to be part of it. So they demand to be let in. I think my favorite theory, though, is when you read earlier, uh, which it should be said the Prophet Muhammad kept uh, a pet cat and so cats are revered in the in the Muslim world. And you read a theory that cats go in the bathroom to absorb the evil spirits and protect us the the jinn the jinn yeah the jinn this is not i mean, this is not scripture this is somebody's comment on a question board about why cats go in the bathroom but he he said that the jinn who are spirits neither human nor angels um, uh, bad spirits right no they have the choice to be good or bad oh, okay they're, they're, sort of they're, they're flame without they are flame without smoke I see. They are a third type of being. Interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by jinn. That's where the genie comes from. Uh, okay. They're not necessarily in bottles, but that's where the word comes from. But the but the jinn are another another mm, force on this planet, another intelligent being. And but for some reason, they hang around bathrooms. I've never heard this one before, but that's what this guy says. And he said that cats absorb negative energy, and uh, so if there's negative jinns. In the bathroom, the they're, cats are there they're to doing protect us. us. A service. Uh, apparently, I had this idea that somehow the bathroom is like river or something that the cats are going to to get their prey. You know, there's some kind of primordial place for them. Well, that's that, awfully romantic. Uh, maybe they just like the smell of your poop. Oh, there we are talking about <laughs> poop again. Why don't you? Maybe don't they, you, it's where their litter box is and. Well, and in it's our where house, our litter boxes, yeah, yeah, in our house. So uh, I don't know. Maybe they just think they have the right to watch us using the litter box. Maybe you should explain what the cats do while you're uh, pondering a blog post, shall we say, in the bathroom. <laughs> what do we do? In the, I don't know. It's just all unicorns and hearts and roses in the bathroom. Well, it's it always starts out with Phoebe, our little black cat, our little black female with the bad heart. Uh, you would never know she has a bad heart. She's very feisty, and she cannot stand to be locked, locked out of the bathroom. And she, of the three cats, she's the only one who's smart enough to let herself in. So even if you close the door, she opens the door and then opens the way for the other two to come in. Guaranteed, if you ever step into the bathroom, Phoebe will join you. And I don't know how she knows that you're going to the bathroom. It doesn't matter where else she is in the house, what she's doing. You step in the bathroom, she's right behind you. Phoebe. She also, by the way, kicks down the door like the SWAT team or something. She's so good. She's an eight-pound cat. She's this little tiny cat with a bad heart and with one perfectly directed blow, she opens the door. I, she's a genius. Phoebe is a genius. I, I'm always amazed by the turnings of her mind, especially in comparison to the boys who are thick as bricks. But anyway, she opens the door. 
lately what she wants from me is for me to turn on the bathtub so she can drink out of the faucet. So that's that's what we're doing, Phoebe and I, in the bathroom. Does she want you to do that too? She, you started that, so now she's doing that for me as well. well and we, then now Buck, on the other hand, stands on top of the sink, right? And yeah, Buck always runs in and, and jumps, jumps up on the sink, which is right next to the toilet, takes advantage of proximity and height, and purrs, like purrs like a madman, just like purr, 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 right in your ear. And if you're not, and he wants to be petted, and if you don't pet him, then he bats at you, bats at your head and shoulder. Does he do that to you? Sometimes, not as much as for you. Mm. Now, Trout doesn't like the bathroom as much, but sometimes he joins the party. But what he does is inevitably he jumps up on the on the counter and then up to the window and balances on our double-hung window, looking out into the backyard and threatening the integrity of the screen. There's pictures of this, of course, on the blog. Yeah, but there, it is not uncommon to have all three of them doing all these things all at exactly the same time. So Phoebe's across from me, drinking out of the tub. Buck is hitting me over the head, and, and Trout's in the window. Very distracting. Yeah, no, no peace in the bathroom. I, wonder, I still just don't understand why it's such a party. They Great mystery. Me. We'll you never... know, I'm out on the couch. I'm reading a book. Are they bothering me? No. Are they trying to... They want me to pet them? No. You know, I go into the bathroom. All of a sudden, I'm interesting. They're not in here in the uh, podcasting Cosmodrome right now. They are not. They're not bothering us. We're here. We've been sitting here. It's very similar. We're, we're both sitting in chairs. We've been sitting here for a while. We're not going anywhere. Sort of analogous to a toilet. Because so, I used to think maybe it was just opportunity. Like, oh, you know, uh, you're making an analogy gonna, between, between the toilet, and, the toilet and, and doing and a podcast. podcast. Thank it, you. Yeah, <laughs> I guess you could spin that one out, can't you? But I'm only thinking from the cat's point of view. The humans are sitting in one place. They are available, yet the cats are not here. Well, I don't think we'll ever have the answer to this one. No, it's one of the mysteries of the universe. Our last topic is one that, when I wrote it for the blog, I feared was straying precariously off topic, which we sometimes do, and that is the topic of fencing. This is totally your topic. Well, now, now let's let let's be clear about what kind of fencing we're talking about. When it when it comes up in not, the context, not cedar fencing, not cedar fencing, not chain link, not fencing, chain link fencing, not bamboo fencing, but the modern Olympic sport of fencing, which is Eric's passion, and used to be Kelly's. Well, I did it for a while, but I don't know if it was my passion. But we're we're going to bring you back. You're to trying, it. yeah. I, I'm under heavy lobbying to come back to the fencing strip, so I might. It occurred to me though that you know I was thinking about this 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 sport and why I'm obsessed obsessed with it. In spite of having terrible knees, I've been struggling with with runner's knee for years now. We took the sport up many years ago, and I I can't remember can't remember the year. It was the early two thousands, and then. I had to take a break from it due to runner's knee. Came back, got runner's knee again because of it. But this time around, I had a better doctor, and she suggested, well, you can fix this. And what I ended up doing was something that I tell everyone if you can afford it to do, which is to get a personal trainer who can, a rehab person specifically, who can work on whatever problems you have. And fix them. So I decided to face it down, try to fix the problem rather than give it up because it's something I like to do. And it's more or less under control right now, not perfectly, 
but I can, I can keep it under control. And in thinking about it, I was wondering, well, what, what are the benefits of this very marginal sport that no one cares about? And I think the primary one for me is staying mobile as we get older, is mobility, essentially. Staying loose and limber and able to do activities. And I think it's a really good sport for that because it involves speed and flexibility and... Also, there's a cognitive part of it that I really like, too, which is that the scene is always changing in front of you, and you have to adapt to to what's going on. Now, it should also be said we're both pretty bad at it, too. We're bad, yet we're naturally gifted because we're both tall, uh, long-armed people, which gives us a, a natural advantage over shorter people because we can just poke them easier. So. Longer, longer reach. I, I look like one of those... Um, you know how you used to make crafts out of pipe cleaners? That's kind of what I look like. And when I first stepped into the fencing studio where we go, fortune fencing, our, our, sadly, our late fencing coach said to me, uh, well, if I were to make a fencing robot from scratch, it would look like you. <laughs> And uh, that's, that's because Eric's also very thin. So if he turns sideways, he disappears. I and I have no shoulders. So there's, there's less target, less target area. Less target. So everything's perfect. Kelly kind of, you know, kind of looks sort of the same. Uh, not um, quite as two dimensional. Not quite. Well, pretty much two. Very tall. <laughs> but for a woman, I'm, I'm tall and my arms are extraordinarily long. So, yeah, I can I can really pound on smaller women. There's there's some. However, tallness tallness (laughs) won't get you everything because you you can, yes, that's the other nice thing about this sport is that you can compensate for whatever your issue is by some other, by strategy, which is the other part of it that I really like is the strategy part of it. Because you really do, there's, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of moves. You have to kind of assess who you're going up against and you have to ask yourself, what kind of person am I facing? Are they sort of a defensive person? Are they an offensive person? And then there's all these tricks and traps that people will set for you that makes it a really, really interesting game. The, the thing is always said is it's chess at 100 miles an hour because it's that feeling of I do something, the opponent does something, I've got to think two or three steps ahead of them if I'm going to, to get the touch. And it's something I think about, you know, I'm kind of a naturally naive person when it comes to dealing with things like politics and things like that. And sometimes when I have to deal with with a a city official, I flash back to the fencing strip and I think, oh, this person isn't dealing with me on the square and level. There is something else going on here. And I've got to be kind of thinking about that and thinking two steps ahead. And I think as we all get older, it's nice to have, you know, it doesn't have to be fencing, of course. It could be some other activity, some other sport that helps us kind of expand our mind and our way of thinking. Fencing has winners and losers. That's the other interesting thing about it. You lose. You know, one of the, one of the parents at uh, our fencing coach's memorial service said it, it taught her son how to deal with disappointment. And I really like that, too, because it, <laughs> let me tell there's you, there's a lot of disappointment when you're a uh, not-so-good 49-year-old, almost 49-year-old fencer at this point. I would but it's a good lesson. Yeah, and, and I would say 
that this isn't so removed from homesteading topics because I think a lot of what we work toward is good living for less um, without without recourse to big institutions, medical technology and such. And so staying fit is a very important part of the homestead lifestyle. And participating in sports is one way to stay fit. And what's interesting about participating in sports when you're in your 40s is that you know at this point you're never going to the Olympics. And hopefully... No. Oh, well... <laughs> <laughs> Unless, well, there's a there's an oldster Olympics, isn't there? There is, but, but basically, I think when you're young, there's more pressure on you. Like, are you going to be brilliant? You know, you know, you're going to you're on some team and you're going to the local the local competition, and then maybe you get good and you go to a regional competition. And then people start you know expecting big things from you. When you're in your 40s, nobody expects anything from you at all. It's a miracle that your knees work and you're doing something, and there's a lot of freedom in that. And hopefully you're mature enough at this point not to be um, competitive in a petty way as we can be when we're younger, and also mature enough not to be hard on yourself if you fail because – Probably by this time in your life, you failed a lot and you're used to it. So there's something very freeing about being being of this age and starting a new sport. And it's imperative at this age that we stay active because this is the time of life when many people opt to slow down. Maybe they don't do it consciously, but they're swamped by responsibility. They don't carve out time to uh, stay stay active and then you know various infirmities, diseases, weight piles on, and it's a downhill spiral. And can and and we know as you get older, stuff happens really fast. There's like a month of not doing something, and you're falling apart. So, in short, it really pays to find something you love to do, whether it's hiking or fencing or swimming or playing tennis, and or. or and it's especially good, I think, to learn something new. So if you can find a new sport that challenges you, something you've never done before, I think that really shakes up your brain cells, prevents the Alzheimer's, and gets you fit. So I'm totally for oldster sports. Fencing has this huge learning curve, it, it should be said. But that's, that's the nice thing about it. There's, you're always learning something. I never feel like I'm repeating something. There's always something new to learn. There's always a new challenge. There's always some new person to face that you don't know. Also, it, you can fence way into your golden years. Absolutely. Looks like you were saying strategy and skill can make up for like speed and... Well, the old quote is, old age and treachery beats youth and skill every time. Because those youngsters are fast. They are oh, very they fast. Are fast. But yeah, you can outthink them. And there's an old world civility to it, too. Every match begins with a with a salute and a, ends with a handshake and another salute. So that's a nice part of it. It has, um, you know, the other reason I, I thought of putting it on the blog is because it's kind of like a appropriate technology video game, almost like a 19th century video game. You have multiple lives. A little <laughs> light comes on when you score a point. It's very funny that way. But unlike a video game, you're getting some actual exercise and you're having a face-to-face you know, real thing is happening. Uh, and I wish that it weren't so marginal in this country that it were a little more popular than it is. Uh, and I, I hope that'll happen someday. We have another reader question this week about chickens in small spaces. It's yet another question that took us 
three years is time to answer. So apologies for that. Hey, I'm calling because I um, saw your um, post about asking questions on your blog, and I had a question about keeping chickens in town. I've had chickens in town before, but we had a large lot, so I just had a standard size run, a big run for them. And um, now we've moved to a smaller lot, and I'm not sure the best way to manage chickens on a smaller piece of property. I don't know if I should have a designated um, run or if I should use a chicken tractor or what you think the best way is. I'm worried about um, the manure building up and being stinky for my neighbors. So anyway, I'd appreciate to hear what you all have to say about that. Thanks. I love your blog. Uh, My name is Katie. Bye. Chickens in small spaces. Well, we know all about that because our we yard is pretty space small and, and we've we got have chickens. chickens. Indeed. One of the questions Katie had was about uh, having a chicken tractor. And a chicken tractor is a great thing. I think it would work in a large suburban yard that's flat and has probably grass would be best. A small urban backyard, a chicken tractor... It's going to be difficult. I'm not going to say impossible, but it's going to be difficult. I'm dubious. I'm. I would even lean towards impossible. If you imagine, like, the, it depends on the size of your tractor, of course. But like, how many spots in your yard can your tractor move to? Like, say you've got a rotation of four or five spots every day. The chickens are in a new spot. Can the can one spot recover sufficiently in five days? If you have five spots. Um, before the chickens come back on it to not make it a moonscape? And I think the answer is no. But uh, definitely you can have chickens in a small lot. Yes. You're probably going to have to have a either a dedicated space or let them have run of the yard. But, of course, you, if they have run of the yard, they're going to eat things and scratch. Something to think about. I have heard of people kind of rotating the chickens around the house that that might work in some situations. Oh, you mean like front yard, side yard, backyard? Yeah, but I think in most situations that's probably not going to work. So you're going to need to do a dedicated coop and run. And I would say that the larger you can make that, the happier the chickens will be. And then the the other question was about manure. And smell. and, And that, of course is taken care of by, this is one of Kelly's favorite topics, deep which is... Deep bedding. Deep bedding. Deep bedding. I cannot say deep bedding enough. I just, I, it frustrates me so much when I go around and I see chickens kept on packed dirt or concrete or mud. It, deep bedding solves all problems and it, it solves your problems. It makes it easier for you to keep chickens. It solves the chickens' problems. It makes them happy. It makes them healthy. It's inexpensive. It's easy. Why not do it? Okay, so let me back up. What is deep bedding? Deep bedding is the process of, uh, is, is the act of laying down a ton of organic matter in the bottom of your chicken's coops. Any kind of dry organic matter, usually straw, that's what we use. But if you had a source of some other kind of dry organic matter, I'm sure you could use that too. Um, if you have a deciduous tree in your yard that drops a lot of leaves, throw all the leaves in your coop along with the straw maybe that you've had from the spring or whatever. Just Use it. It's almost like having a compost heap, but it's all dry matter. It should be deep. When you say deep bedding, you're not saying a sprinkle. You're saying like six inches, eight inches, a lot, a lot of bedding, and it needs to be renewed sometimes as well. The What happens then with this deep bedding is that when the chickens poo in there, that poo gets scratched into the bedding through their constant scratching and moving around, and it, and it does make it into sort of a living 
compost heap. Also, any sort of fresh vegetable scraps that you throw in there get composted along with the poo. So the chickens are maintaining their own compost pile, essentially, but it's a slightly drier. It's, it's not as, I don't want you to imagine like a, a compost pile. It's a little bit cleaner looking than that. And there is no odor. I mean, even on hot days, there is really no odor. It's amazing. It, it works. So just like get yourself a, a, bay, a, a straw bale and um, you won't probably use all of it if you don't have a huge coop and spread spread the straw around. The chickens will love it because chickens are born to scratch. And when they have a lot of dry bedding, they can just spend all day looking for bugs and stuff in the bedding. So it keeps them busy, which reduces behavior, behavior problems. It also keeps their feet clean. It keeps them out of mud. It uh, keeps their feet warmer when it's cold. It's it's just great. And I don't know why it's not standard practice, but it should be. The other thing you could do is have your chickens in a coop and run and then have supervised playtime outside of we, that coop and run, that's which we what used we did. to do. That's what we did, yeah. We but, have a set of chickens right now that like to fly over the fence. We could clip their feathers, but... I still don't trust them. They're they're pretty wily bunch. They're wild. But I did build a fairly large uh, run for them, and I feel pretty good about the arrangement we have now. It might not be perfect. I think ideally chickens are out wandering in a field all day and then coming in a coop at night. Uh, it's hard to do that in an urban situation. An urban situation is probably always going to be somewhat of a compromise. Lastly... Oh. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I just wanted we couldn't we can't sign off on the whole topic until we talk about what people ask always ask if you have deep bedding, how often do you clean the deep bedding? You don't have to clean the deep bedding. Which is the greatest thing about it is that you don't have to clean it. You do have to clean the coop where they sleep at night because that builds up. But yeah. that's a more or less a weekly process. So, yeah. So first of all, the bedding, like I said, it, it becomes somewhat like a compost pile. It does create a nice, you start, it starts breaking down into soil uh, in the run. And you can actually harvest that if you need it for your garden. It's, it would be a high quality compost to add to your beds. And some people opt to do that. You maybe just do that annually or something, but you don't have to because it takes how many inches of, of, of dry matter does it take to make soil? Is it like a foot of a foot to one inch or something like that? Anyway, there's no danger of you like raising the ground level in your coop because you never harvest that. That stuff all compresses and degrades and goes down. You need to keep adding dry matter actually to keep the process going. But there, but the chickens are taking care of it for you. You don't have to muck that out unless you want the material. Otherwise, you just leave it be. And then, like Eric said, in their hen house, if you keep chickens, you know they never spend any time in their hen house. Uh, they like to be outside. So in the hen house, they don't scratch and, and move the dry matter around and make it into compost. Also, the house is on wood usually or whatever you made your house at. It's not on soil. So you don't have compost activity going on in the house. For that reason, you have to clean the house out. But like our house isn't very big, so it's about as hard as cleaning a cat box. Uh, analysis paralysis can really set in when it comes to chicken housing. It's one of those things where you have to look at your yard, figure out as much space as you can devote to the chickens, and get going building on it. 
And though there's a learning curve, there was with us, I had to enlarge the coop uh, and the run. And it's still not perfect. It's still not perfect, but it's it works. And I would say, get going, build Just it. Just do it. Make sure it's secure against raccoons, and you're going to have fresh eggs. That's it for the third episode of the Root Simple Podcast. To leave a question, call us at 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. Follow our blog at rootsimple.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter, and you can friend me on Facebook. I'm Eric Knutson, K-N-U-T-Z-E-N. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Additional music by Roe. Thank you for listening. Thank you.